This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. As Corey said, my name is uh, John Sharbach, and I'm a member at uh, Providence Church, which is another Acts 29 church sort of down the street. And I've been uh, exploring church planting, and uh, one of the recommendations my pastor gave to me was just get as many reps in as you can with preaching. And so, so Corey and Mike have been nice enough to invite me to do that. Uh, experiment on you guys. No, so hopefully this is a uh, edifying experience for both of us, both for me and for you. And I know that to a certain extent it sort of feels like, you know, the substitute teacher's here and they've rolled in the TV that's showing the Lion King in Spanish. Um, but I'm actually going to be here again next week, so uh, it means you actually have to pay attention. Uh, but let's, let's uh, invoke the Lord here uh, before we start. Um, God, please give me the words to speak your truth and give us all the ears to hear your truth and give us hearts to accept and cherish and obey your truth and help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we, we pray that you would move powerfully among us by your spirit to conform us to the image of your son. And I hope that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, our passage for this morning is going to be Acts chapter 2 starting in verse 42. Uh, and if you're using one of the, the blue Bibles from, from out back, it's on page 531. Let me give you a second to turn there. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Let's go ahead and read the passage. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their, in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. So I think we all sort of say we want community. Um, even from the very beginning of the Bible, chapter 2 of Genesis, God proclaims that it is not good for man to be alone. There's something that's hardwired into us, not just, yes, that we have, we're hardwired for a vertical relationship with God, but we're also hardwired for a horizontal relationship with one another. And so it should never just be, you know, me, Jesus, and my Bible in the ordinary course of things, that we're made for community and we're called into community. And I think if we're honest, however, we would admit that we struggle with community. Um, you know, almost half of all Americans say that they feel lonely, they wish they had more community. I think the number is probably higher, uh, and it is in some studies. And I suspect that that's true of a lot of people in this room. I know it's true of me um, from time to time. And the question I have is, well, why is that? Uh, if we're made for this, why, why is it such a struggle for us? And there's many proposed causes out there. You know, oh, it's the internet. It's, just, it's the social media. 
Uh, you know, it's the decline of American institutions, it's the decline of the church, it's politics, it's the changing fabric of American society. And all these things are true to a certain extent. Like, yeah, you can see how that would contribute to a decline in community, but I would suggest that those are all just symptoms. And the root or the source of it is something much more serious, which is sin. Uh, in particular, the reason we struggle with community is that everyone has a rival vision for what community should look like that we all want to be kings of our own little kingdoms. We want everyone else to live into our vision of community. And so what that means is that sometimes we try to get other people to live for us, and then sometimes other people, we try to live for other people. And then sometimes we decide that other people have nothing to offer us, and so we don't bother to include them in our community. Or sometimes other people decide that we have nothing to offer them, and they just don't bother to include us in their community. But no matter how you slice the bologna, the, the basic problem is still the same, is that people have rivalry, people get hurt, and people feel pain. And so we withdraw from community, and or community withdraws from us, and we end up feeling isolated. And I think our passage for today gives us and shows us a better way, which is that if our problem is all that we're trying to establish our own rival kingdoms that are all competing against one another, that the solution is that God gives us a good and perfect king to whom we can all submit, and in him we can go from being rival kings competing against one another to being family members. Uh, that, that God sends his son to free us to live for something better. That he frees us from the tyranny of autonomy and rivalry so that we can live together as a family. And this is not just a metaphor, this is a biblical reality that we are adopted as God's children and therefore we are family members with one another. And so we are free to live as a family. And so that's sort of the main point that I want to draw out of the text today is that because we have one father, we are free to live as one family. Because we have one father, we are free to live as one family. And my illustration for how the text sort of fits together, and I think this is important, is, you know, imagine a, a beautiful mountain stream, and like mountain streams have a source, or they have a fountainhead, is what it's called, and that from which the, the water bubbles, and it flows down the mountain, and maybe it hits a little, you know, crack, and it begins to fill up a little pool. And then that pool spills over and it goes down some more, hits another, and it fills up, and then spills down some more and just works its way down the mountain. And, and the reason I, I say that, and everything's sort of connected, starts with the fountainhead and moves down, is because uh, you know, in the ESV, verse 42, 43, and 44 all start with the word and, but in Greek it's actually this little particle or the conjunction called day, which is more like but or then or now. And, and but doesn't really fit here because these are obviously not contrastive ideas, so I think it's pushing us more towards a then or a now, that because verse 41 is true, therefore verse 42 is true, because verse 42 is true, 43, 44, and so on down the mountain. Uh, and so that's the assumption that we're going to be proceeding with today. So we're going to start with the fountainhead, which is Christ, that, that, that God, that through Christ, God is our Father, that at the fountainhead, or the source of our isolation is our sin or our rival kingdoms, then the fountainhead or the source of true community is Christ. And I say this in part because the they in verse 42 is the same people in verse 41 who received his word and were baptized and were added to the church. Um, that these, are, these, are belie these new believers are people who used to experience the same brokenness and rivalry uh, that I think we all struggle with, and then now begun to experience a new and redemptive community under the, under the King Jesus. 
And through him, they've become children of the living God. And so now they're free to live as a family. And so I want to make sure that the fountainhead of the text is also the fountainhead of the sermon, meaning that if we want to have this sort of community, we actually must be in Christ. That there's a, you know, that there's no one born into God's family, right? We are only reborn into God's family. And so without Christ, there is no Christian community. Um, and without Christ, we're sort of like children who are playing family. Like we've got my play cousin and my play brother and ha ha ha, I'm mom, I'm dad, whatever. You know, but when the game is over, we all go our separate ways and the family doesn't really exist and we're all still sort of lonely again. We shouldn't be children who are going through the motions of playing family. We must actually really be a family. Uh, so I would say don't, just right from the outset, before we even dive in, don't misunderstand the text, which is, this is not that we have become a family because we have great community. No, it's the converse of that. It's that because we have become a family, we can have great community. And so I think the fountainhead of the, of the text uh, calls us to something, which is that if we are not yet a member of God's family, that, we need to, that he is inviting us to join him as his sons and daughters right here, right now, as one of his children. And he's doing that by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And if we believe in him, we will be saved. And more than saved, we will be added and adopted into his family. And so that's what I mean when I say that Christ is the fountainhead or the source of the Christian community. That through Christ, we all have one father. And, and, and from that fountainhead, the stream begins to flow down the mountain and fill up the first pool. Which is that because God is our father, that we should gather as a family. Look at verse 42. It says, and, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so the very first thing we do, we, this, is, this massive church that just formed, it's gone from about 120 people to 3,000 people, right? There's a church growth problem for you. Uh, good luck administering that. But anyway, it, it's the first thing they do is they start devoting themselves to this new life they have in Christ, they're saved in verse 41. They're devoting themselves in verse 42. And there's four things here that they're devoting themselves to, but there's two basic groupings grammatically. And you can kind of see that with the comma. It, it mirrors basically what's going on in the Greek. The first clause is they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And the second clause is they're devoting themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So what do those two things mean? Well, I think that the first clause is talking about they're gathering together as a church, like as a gathered assembly. And the reason I say that is for, for two reasons. First is the apostles' teaching is sort of like a leader-driven teaching. It's teaching that comes from Jesus to the 12 apostles, and the 12 apostles are distributing it out to the people. And, and, and that sort of teaching of doctrine is usually in the book of Acts. It happens in larger groups. So you see Paul do it later on uh, to the whole church in, in uh, I forget the city, sorry. Um, but it's, it's a sort of like leader-driven church teaching that you would see kind of here on Sunday morning. And the second reason I say it is this word, this word fellowship, uh, which means like participation or sharing or a partnership. And it's, it's used in one of two senses in the New Testament. The one sense is sort of like as a, as a financial partnership, like Paul's partnership with the Philippians and the gospel. But it's, it, the other sense in which it's used is as a spiritual fellowship. And so our participation, our, our, when we take the communion meal, for example, it's a participation in Christ's body that's showing that we're spiritually 
joined to Christ and therefore to one another, or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so I think this is pointing us towards like the fellowship that happens when we gather together and devote ourselves to one another in fellowship, particularly in the communion meal, but also in the bond of the Holy Spirit. Uh, particularly when you pair that with the teaching, it seems to be that's what it's pointing to, that we're, they're gathering as an assembly, but then they're also in clause two, the second clause, they're scattered into smaller groups. And I say that because the, the breaking of bread in verse 42 is used again in verse 46. And in verse 46, it seems very clearly referring to like they're actually eating meals together. They're receiving the meals with joy. They're enjoying table fellowship with one another. It doesn't seem to be talking about communion in the first instance. Uh, but it's sort of like they're doing it altogether, yeah, sort of like a big Baptist potluck. But they're also doing it from house to house with one another. Uh, and then the second reason I think that is because prayers, what it says, um, it, it could mean like the prayer of the church, like the corporate prayer. But usually when, well, as far as I can tell, always when, when that's the, view, the thing that Luke has in mind, he refers to it as prayer singularly, the prayer of the church. And here it's plural. It's the prayers of the church. And so I think the idea is that they're scattered throughout the city and they're praying in smaller groups for one another for church, for the, for, for the kingdom of God to advance. Um, and so these people are devoting themselves to the church. Yes, but they're devoting themselves to the church both as a gathered assembly and also as a scattered people in smaller groups. And the question I have is, well, why is that? Like, why is it so important that they're doing that? Is it just so that, you know, like we can have a big church? Well, the, the answer is no. Is that I think the answer is because of the fall, Paul tells us that our hearts and our minds have been darkened by the effects of sin. And, and yet, those who are in Christ are now new creations. That they're beginning to cast off the effects of the fall. And their minds are beginning to be renewed, and their hearts are beginning to be renewed. But, one of the, but the, the means through which that is occurring primarily is through the truth. That the truth is the catalyst that begins to transform our hearts and our minds. This is Ephesians 4 stuff. Um, and, and the truth is not something that we just kind of do in isolation, but truth is something that happens through the people that God has put into the church and gets gifts, that through mutual encouragement per Colossians 3. Like, truth is a community project, and we're all speaking truth to one another, not just you know, the, the preacher on Sunday morning, but also in smaller groups throughout the week that we're encouraging each other. That this is the means to which our minds are renewed and we begin to see reality for what it really is. And our faith has grown and we begin to experience the power and the presence of God. And so this requires, this sort of mind change actually requires devotion to the church and to the people of God. It requires devotion to the teaching of God. It requires devotion to one another. It requires devotion to prayer. And what I would suggest from this text is that this is not a once-a-week commitment. This is the, the word devoted something more means something to the effect of like they continue steadfastly. That, that little later on we, we see the phrase day by day in the, in, in, in the temple. That this is something that's happening every day. This is something that's going on constantly in their lives. Uh, that they're living, it's as if they're living their lives together all of the time. Which makes a certain amount of sense, right? Because Hebrews chapter Three tells us that sin is working to harden our hearts all of the time. And so we need the community of God and the encouragement and help of God's people to help us combat that all the time. So listen to what the author of Hebrews says in verses 12 and 13. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, not just Sunday, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
And so the illustration I would use for this is, I was born in the 1980s, and, um, well, sorry, back up. There's a dominant New Testament metaphor, which is that we were asleep, and now we are awake in Christ. And so I was born in the 1980s, and this is the golden era of low-budget horror films. Um, and the, the formula is very, uh, it's very formulaic, right? There's a group of teenagers, there's some kind of monster, and the teenagers are supposed to stick together, but for whatever reason, they're teenagers, so they're, you know, they, one of them will wander off, or two of them will, and they'll get murdered, right? And that's, that's the formula of, you know, the, the, the 1980s low-budget horror film. And so there's this 1984, uh, it's not good Christian content, but it's got a good Christian idea in it, which is that Freddy Krueger, he's this monster, and he's a dream monster, okay? He lives in their dreams, and he's trying to get the teenagers to fall asleep, because when they fall asleep, he has power, and he can kill them. And so what happens is all the teenagers come together, and they're trying to keep each other awake, and they're trying to be like, hey, don't fall asleep, or else, you know, Freddy will get you. Um, and so, what, of course, what is, it follows the formula, so one of the teenagers, this is Johnny Depp's breakout, or I think his first role, Johnny Depp, his name is Glenn, he gets cut off from the group, and his parents are like, oh, Glenn needs some sleep. And so Glenn falls asleep, and Glenn is very gruesomely murdered. Um, and, and so I think the, the point is that together, we can sort of keep each other awake. But separately, we're very easy prey, that Satan has power over this world and over those who are spiritually asleep. And we too were once asleep before God came and said, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Um, it's as if the Holy Spirit has, we're sleeping in a bed, like we're, you know, and the Holy Spirit rips open the curtains. And the light of Christ, it's the early afternoon, it comes pouring in to the bedroom. And we can't, like, we have to wake up. That's where the, the light of Christ is here, you know? But we actually do have a choice. And the choice is this. I see the light of Christ. I can't fall back to sleep. But I can roll over and keep dozing. I can roll over and keep dozing. And so what's, what's going on is that Satan knows that. And so Satan is trying to sing you a little lullaby to get you to fall back into, into his dark dream kingdom where he's king. And so he says, you know, lullaby and good night, go to sleep, little Christian. And well, you know, I'll spare you the rest, but like, th here's, here's the tone that he's singing. Hey, get a good job. Climb the ladder. Impress your boss. Make a name for yourself. Get a house. Get a spouse. Hey, maybe you've already got a spouse. Upgrade your spouse. Treat yourself to that car. Have a family. Save some money. Enjoy yourself. Stop worrying so much about holiness and live your best life now. Don't be so puritanical. Right? And so these things, a lot of these things are not bad. A lot of these things are good gifts from God. And yet if we let them, they will lull us back into sleep. They will become the main thing and they'll push out the spirit. They'll quench out the spirit. As Corey, Corey, was, talking, Corey, about, Corey was talking about last week. And so our eyelids will start to feel heavy and we'll start to slowly begin to doze and sink back in. And, and one day we'll realize that even though the Lord of light has shed his precious blood to awake us from sleep so that we can be free from the effects of sin, that we have voluntarily resubmitted ourselves to the slavery of the Lord of darkness. And, and we did that in exchange for a few worldly trinkets and a little worldly praise. You know, and yes, okay, we know that if, if we are in Christ, 
We cannot be fully put back to sleep in this way. We cannot be re-enslaved to Satan fully. Yes, that is true. But I would submit that you don't want to be the thing that finally wakes you up and gets you out of bed to be the sounding of the last trumpet and to be called before the great, the great white throne of our Lord Jesus Christ, only to realize that you've wasted the rest of your life. So, that being the case, God has made provision for us. He has given us his church. He has given us people, a group of people who call us to say, hey, stay awake. Remember what's important. Keep your eyes open. Get out of bed. Keep the curtains open. And so the principle that I would extract from that would be that we should live our lives together as if they depended upon it. Because in some sense, like the 1980s low-budget horror film, they do. That we don't just give our Sunday and our Wednesday night to God uh, and then go and do, just give the rest of our lives to the world. Right? That we should, we should treat our church family as if God has put them in our, in our lives to help us to persevere. And we shouldn't be like the idiot teenagers that wander off and do whatever. And so, you know, just, just a little aside here. I know, the, okay, this sounds good in practice. In, in reality, in theory, it sounds good. In practice, many people have been hurt by church communities, okay? And so many churches, all churches are made up of fallen individuals. That's inevitable. That's the, that's the name of the game. That's why we're trying to keep each other awake in the first place. But many churches have, are not really well-founded upon the word. Many churches who have leaders who are not qualified according to the word or do not act in accordance with the word. Many churches, um, you know, have members who don't live up to the word or act according to, in, in accordance with the word. But, but I would say that the abuse of a thing, and there is very real abuse that occurs within churches, does not abnegate or nullify, that's, abnegate, that's a helpful word, does not nullify the proper use of a thing. And so we should trust God for his appointed means that, he's given, that he is using to mature us. And we should, as, as the author of Hebrews says, not neglect to meet together one. You know, and so if you, if you find yourself in one of those communities, then you know, maybe you find a different community, but the, but the solution is not to withdraw from any community. Uh, and, and, if, and if for some reason, I don't think this is true, but if for some reason, hey, you feel like this, is not, like this community is not working for you, then talk to, talk to one of the elders about that and explain why and actually have a conversation and bring it into the light. And I'm sure they'd be happy to have that conversation and help you work through that. So, so two practical applications. You know, that's the principal level. Here's two practical applications. Number one is attend Sunday gathering. That we should meet together and devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to our mutual fellowship as a body, not just through, you know, like a, a podcast or something. Like, the fact, like, I like John Piper too, you know, but, like, that's not gathering together. That's just hearing good, sound doctrine, which is good. You should do that. Great. But that's not a substitute for what God has called us to. We're, we're not to neglect to meet together. And the second thing is that we should get involved in some kind of small group, that we should devote ourselves to the breaking of bread, to prayers, and to mutual encouragement. And the logic of that is really simple. Hey, if you guys don't know each other or don't feel comfortable around one another, you cannot encourage one another and you cannot confront one another. So you are, you are, you are useless to one another in that respect. And so if you'd like to get involved in a small group, my understanding is that there's two types of small groups here at Austin Life Church. The first is a community group, which is like eight or more people. There's seven of them. Uh, that you, if, if you want to learn more about community groups, well, the, the basic idea is that you share life and you grow together and you get to know people and you discuss the Bible. And if you want more information on what that looks like, uh, two people named Hampton and Taylor can give you more information. Uh, there's also a Connect booth out there. You can fill out a little Connect card uh, or you can go on the website. Um, the second 
group is the, is the discipleship group, which is like two to four people, uh, same, same gender. And the idea there, if you study the Bible, you apply the Bible, you, you, you share honestly both the wins and the struggles in your life, and then you pray for one another and for the church and for the city. And, and, and so that's the, that's the big takeaway. Like, hey, we really do need to get to know each other so we can be useful and we can encourage one another. And so if we, because we have one father, we are free. We, 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 he's given us this community for renewal and for protection. And we should devote ourselves to one another. And as we do, we begin to renew our hearts and renew our minds. And that'll, that pool will fill up and it'll spill over into the next pool. Which is that because God is our father, we should revere him. Because God is our father, we should revere him. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So, so basically, like as our minds and our hearts are renewed, our priorities will begin to shift. And fear of God will begin to crowd out fear of the world. Where's that word fear coming from? Well, the, the word awe in the ESV literally translates as fear. It's like a reverence or it's a, it's a worship. It's, a, it's the awareness of the reality and of, the, and of the power and the presence of God. His goodness, yes, but also his glory and his greatness. It's the same kind of fear that, the, the, that Solomon talks about in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and so the picture, it's sort of like we've all woken up from this nightmare, and now we realize things are very different than we thought they were. The world is very different than it looks like in Satan's dream kingdom. And now that we're awake, we're seeing reality as it really is, and it gives us a new attitude towards life, where, where, where new things are important and old things seem less important. And so the illustration that I would use here is um, like a ship, like, tend to, like a, some kind of watercraft, they tend to be sort of unstable because it's basically just like a horrible balancing act. And if you shift the, the center of gravity too much, whoo, it capsizes. It's terrible. So what, what they do is they, uh, they'll, they'll put heavy stuff at the bottom of the ship and it'll weight it down. It's called ballast. It's probably a French word. I don't know. It sounds fancy. But it's like heavy junk is basically what ballast translates into. Uh, and and it, it, it weights the ship down and it gives it more substance. So its center of gravity is harder to move which makes the ship far more stable and much harder to step over, to tip over. And, and so the, the, the glory of God is like ballast for our souls. And we experience the power, as Corey said last week, the presence of God, the power of God, come through, come through the Holy Spirit by faith. And so we work to, we devote ourselves to him, to his church, to his teaching. It's like adding ballast to our souls through faith. And it gives them substance, and it gives them weight, and it gives us much more. Uh, it gives us it gives us much less turbulent lives. We're much more stable, and we're less prone to the storms of life, and to be blown to and fro by every wind of false doctrine. And and so the way I would apply this basic principle in verse forty-two is that when you feel the pull of the world and its judgments, like the world's going to say, "Hey, if you follow Jesus, you can't have me." You're going to lose out. You're going to miss out. You know, you only live once. Come on, guys. And that's, that's the lie of the world. And we can say, well, we don't have to fear the world because Scripture tells us that the world is passing away, that the world and everything in it has an expiration date, that if the world is correct in its promises, 
that, that Christ is not Lord and God does not exist, then the best possible outcome is that you die and, and, and seed into oblivion and nothingness. And nothing you do matters, and nothing you get, you get to keep. Okay? But instead, we begin to see through the emptiness of the world's promises, and we begin to fear Christ instead of the world. And we fear Christ not because he is our enemy, but because he is our great king and our great savior. And we see him for the, the true awesomeness of what he is. And so we should devote himself to him and to his truth and to his people and to his worship. And when we do that, we will grow in stability in our lives. And, and so, you know, if, if that's a struggle for you, I can relate. What, what I would suggest is that we just ask him to free us from fear of the world and its judgments. And then ask him to give us a reverential fear of him and his judgments. And as we do that, and as we devote ourselves to God, and as we are filled with his presence, and our, as our fear of God, our reverence for God grows, we begin to see a new relationship develop with worldly things. And that brings us to the, to the next pool, which is that because God is our father, we can care for our siblings. Look at verse 45, 44 and 45. That all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So basically, having been set free from fear of the world and being freed to fear God, they begin to see the world and its possessions and its promises differently. Uh, specifically, they start to share whatever they have, and they start providing for one another's needs. And, and I would draw out four observations from verses 44 and 45 of what they teach us about how we should be sharing with one another. The first thing is that this is believers and not the entire world. But the people who have everything in common are those who had believed. Okay? So he's talking about believers sharing with one another. Uh, second, they're not just giving out of their excess. It's not, I've got some bonus money lying, left around and I'm going to give it to help somebody else. But rather, they're selling their possession. They're getting rid of stuff and giving sacrificially to ensure that the needs of the saints are met. And the third is that their giving is needs-based. It's not just, hey, let's just put all our money in a pool and live on a commune. But it's like, these people need stuff. I have stuff. This person needs stuff. I'm going to sell it and give, and give some proceeds to them. It's needs-based giving. And it is the outgrowth, number four, it's the outgrowth of fellowship. And I say that it's the outgrowth of fellowship because the koina, which means in common in verse 44, koina, is, is related to the word koinomia, which is the word for fellowship in verse 42. That because we have spiritual fellowship with one another, because we are one family, we are freed to have financial fellowship with one another. And so practically what I think this verse is pointing us to, it's modeling helping the needs of the saints through mercy and charity within the, within the church. It's not, in this exact instance, talking about supporting the institutional church. It's not suggesting that you should sell your house and give the money to the institutional church. Uh, there are other passages about supporting the institutional church, and that is required. And we talked about some last week. There's many more to come in Acts and all of Paul's epistles. Um, but it's, it's basically the idea is that they're helping one another to ensure that there is no need within Christian communities. Two, two caveats I would add to this. It sounds radical because it is, right? That we shouldn't, we shouldn't let the exceptions that we're about to say uh, 
undermine the rule. Don't, we don't want the exception to swallow the rule. This is a little, this is a little radical. This is very uh, counter-cultural. This is, runs very contrary to the, to the narrative of the world that says, this is mine and why would I, you know, sorry. Uh, this is mine, why would I give it away? Like, well, yes, it's yours in some sense. Like, it's your possessions. They're selling their possessions. But in another more important sense, they are stewards of those possessions and everything belongs to God. So, with that said, two caveats. The first caveat we see is this practice is limited to those who are either willing to work. I get that from Second uh, Thessalonians verse, chapter 3, verse 10. They're willing to work or they're unable to work. And I'm deriving that from 1 Timothy chapter 5. There's an extended discussion about um, older widows who are unable to provide for themselves. Willing to work or unable to work. And secondly, that this is voluntary. It is not out of compulsion. This sort of mercy-based giving is voluntary, not out of compulsion. Paul is incredibly clear about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. But also, Peter is clear about that in the next chapter, next chapter 5. This is your stuff. You don't have to sell it. Okay? But I would say that this, Paul also says that this, is the, this is the mark of Christian maturity. That we are, we are not required to do it, but it is a natural expression of the gospel. And in particular, I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, I say this, which he's talking about like supporting the needs of the mercy ministry. Uh, I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your, love is all, that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That because Christ has been so lavishly generous with us, with his spiritual blessings, we also can be generous with one another our material blessings. And so imagine that you, you, know, you have a family member in need. And I know this analogy doesn't really work for everybody because some people have very strained relationships with their family. But imagine you have a family member in need. I think you know, in an ordinary course, you would take care of that family member in need. And actually, I think this is an argument, I'd say this is an argument from the lesser to the greater, that if you would, if you would do that and sacrifice in that way for your, your temporal family, to whom you are bound by worldly bonds that will one day be broken by death, how much more should you do that for your spiritual family, whom you are bound together with the eternal bond of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ, and you will never be separated from them? And so I, I would suggest this not as a biblical command, but as a mark of maturity, that you would find a way or find ways to support the needs of the saints. Specifically, to give generously to provide for them. Uh, so, two ways that might look. The one is that you would you would go up and you would ask, you would say, "Hey, Corey, how do I support the needs of the saints here with our benevolence ministry at Austin Life Church?" Or, you would, you know, I'm not going to recommend anything in particular, but you can do some research and find a good Christian charity that serves the needs of the saints either here in Austin, here in the United States, or around the world. Um, it requires a little bit of research, but it, it's, not, it's not hard to do. That's, that's part of what Christian maturity looks like, is that we are taking care of the needs of the saints. And that's especially true here in America, where we are, relatively speaking, extremely wealthy um, and have a great deal of excess. And our standards of delivery can go way, way down before we really start to experience uh, true poverty in most cases. 
But I'll also say, hey, if this feels like a burden for you, I'm with you on that. Uh, I would point out that it doesn't. That this particular sign of maturity is downstream. You know, we've we've got the fountainhead, and we've got one, two, three pools, right? So if it, if it seems like this is hey, this is this is hard. It's not just grit your teeth and open your bank account, right? Get to get to spending. There's times for that, uh, particularly with supporting the church. That that seems to be much more mandatory in the New Testament. But this mercy ministry uh, is downstream of the fountainhead, which is Christ. So if you if it feels like a burden, don't just write the check, but actually return to the source. Um, that because Christ has given us what we cannot lose, we are free to give away what we cannot keep. And I think Christ modeled this most perfectly for us when he gave up his riches and became poor for our sake, so that we become rich in him, yes. But actually, you know, when Satan is tempting Christ in the wilderness, he's offered him, hey, I'll give you everything in the world. You'll have complete dominion over all these things. And he says, no, I don't, no, that's not, you know. And, and, when, and then for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That through the cross, the child became the rebel who was cast out of the covenant community and executed on Calvary, so that rebels could become eternal children and have true community, not just with God, but also with one another. And, and just think that if, if God did that while we were still his enemies, now that we are his children, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? And so we can trust him that if we do his will, and if we you know, express our maturity and giving generously to provide for the needs of the saints, that he will take care of us. He will provide for us. And so as this last pool of generosity fills up, and we begin to live as, we're, as if we are really a family, both spiritually and maturity, the stream sort of reaches the bottom of the mountain and begins to flow out into the world, right? Which brings us to the very last point. And this is, this is short, and we'll close with this, which is that because we live as one family, the world will know that we have one father. Because we live as one family, the world will know that we have one father. I'm getting this from verse 47b, the second half of verse 47, where he says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the result of this, this new way of life is that the church continues to grow. The family of God continues to grow. And God's kingdom keeps advancing and getting larger. And I think it's easy to miss that last little verse there, um, because I think we tend to think in categories of God is only advancing his kingdom by proclaiming the gospel and, and making it wider, which is true. He is certainly doing that. But he is also advancing his kingdom by uh, change, using the gospel to change our lives and, and driving deeper into our lives and changing the way we relate to one another. Which is why John, and Jesus in John's gospel says that the disciples, the people will know that they are his disciples because of their love for one another. The way we relate to one another, the way we provide for the people, the needs of the saints, is a powerful apologetic. It's a powerful argument that says we belong to Christ, that Christ is alive and we belong to him. And people will see our behavior. They'll see how we devote ourselves to the gathering. They'll see how we revere our God. And they'll see how we treat and provide for the needs of other Christians. And they will conclude that because those things are true, because these people are living as a family, therefore they must really be a family. And therefore they must really have this one God as their father. And so let us rejoice 
in our adoption into God's family. Uh, Lord, we hope that you would continue to keep us awake, uh, that you would help us to resist the urge to roll over, get drowsy, fall back to sleep, that you would give us diligence to meet together with one another, uh, and that you would help us live in light of the reality that you are our Father. We hope that you would fill our hearts with your power and your presence through your spirit and give us generous and caring hearts, and you would let the world know and see how we love one another, and as a result, it would glorify you through our good works. We pray all these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.